Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 28, and it might be my favorite show today. Uh, I'm blessed. I get to interview people for a living. I get to spend time with them and learn about their lives, and a lot of people are so kind to open their lives to me in this in this profession. And it's the best part of my job. It's wonderful to be able to spend time with someone, ask them about their lives, and hear them discuss who they are, why they are that person, how they became what they became professionally, and all of those things. And this one is very special. Uh, it is a lengthy, in-depth conversation with country music singer Kip Moore. And for those of you who are country music fans, you know Kip's work. He has a couple number ones um, and is just an amazing artist. He is a great writer. And any of you guys who've listened to this or know anything about me know my passion for songwriting. I wish I could do it better. I think it's just it's just such an admirable talent and an admirable craft. And the people who write songs for a living are one of the few professions that you can honestly alter and save lives with what you craft and what you do and how you do it. Um, I feel that strongly about it. So for Kip to give me this time and insight, I mean, you guys are going to be floored with how vulnerable he is in this conversation. I was, and I've known him. Kip's been a buddy of mine for at least a decade. And uh, when he got to Nashville, I got to meet him and spend some time with him and cut up a little bit, raise a little bit of hell, drink a few beers. And when I turned 40, out of nowhere, Kip happened to be playing a show right next door, uh, downtown Charlotte. A bunch of my buddies uh, threw me kind of a surprise party. It was a little bit of a surprise for my 40th birthday at a uh, a bar downtown in Charlotte and lo and behold in the door walks Kip Moore and uh we had a whiskey together and we caught up and and discussed his tour and his career he has a new tour right now and uh I'm just so proud of him I I I'm just so proud of him and if you guys aren't familiar with his work you will be much more familiar after you listen to this interview uh he is just a beast and uh I I can't say enough about his talent so we'll get to that amazing conversation in just a moment. But before we get to that, I want to discuss with you guys uh, my relationship with Dollar Shave Club. It's an important one for me. You guys know, I mean, this time of year for me is absolutely crazy. I am all over the country chasing college football and doing these features for television and doing these uh, interviews for the podcast. And we have Marty McGee now on Thursday nights on SEC Network. So running around Charlotte all over the place, and it ain't easy to keep this face presentable for America, and Dollar Shave Club helps me do that. No matter what you do in the bathroom to get ready, Dollar Shave Club should be your partner. They have everything that you need to look, feel, and smell your very best. They have amazing shower products, hair styling stuff, toothbrushes, toothpaste, and of course, those razors and shave supplies. My favorite product, you guys have heard me say it, is their shave butter I got to keep this beard looking right because God knows I need the help. And Dollar Shave Club with their shave butter helps my beard look laced as my guy Marcus Spears, my 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 partner, my peer over there at ESPN, says my beard looks laced. That's how I get ready with that shave butter, with their razors, and all of their shower products. But you're not me. You have your own way to get ready. You might shave your whole body. Who knows? A lot of cyclists do that. A lot of triathletes against whom I compete do that. Dollar Shave Club's executive razor and shave butter will help you in that endeavor. 
The thing is, no matter what you do to get ready, Dollar Shave Club is your answer. Right now, you can get ready with an amazing deal on any one of their starter sets. I like the Daily Essential Starter Set because I love that Amber Lavender Body Cleanser. You can't go wrong with any of those products. Head over to dollarshaveclub.com slash myth right now to pick up your own Dollar Shave Club starter set. It's only five bucks. After your starter set, products ship at a regular price. Make sure you check out their new video too. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash smith, dollarshaveclub.com slash smith. Now it's time for my conversation with my buddy Kip Moore. Man, it's a good one. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Let's start with writing. Uh, you know how much passion I have for great writing and, and how great I think yours is. How often do you write songs? Uh, too much, Marty. Um, I need to, I need to step away from it. it it's an obsession. Um, you know, I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm writing almost every single day of my life. Um, you know, for, at some point throughout the day, I'm working on something. Um, whether it's long form, whether it's, you know, ideas, it, it's, it's constantly going. And I'll, as far as sitting down to write a song, um, you know, I might do that. You know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always on the road, so it's uh, it goes in spurts. When I'm playing shows, you know, Wednesday through Sunday or Saturday or whatever, um, I might sit down and work for two hours on, on chomping away at something that I've already started in my head. Um, as far as sitting down to write a full song, you know, that you know, that happens probably twice a week. Um, but I feel like I'm writing seven days a week. 365 days a year that's unbelievable i mean it's it's interesting because i do a different brand of writing but when you're busy and when you're running and going and doing the way that you are and the way i do in my life sometimes man i'll get to a hotel and in your context you know on the bus you'll get to a city i don't feel like doing a damn thing i feel like turning on the game and vegging how do you stay inspired to sit down and and use that thought process to produce greatness. Um, I think there's two things. I think that uh, first off, I, I think it's just an innate thing that I've had in me for a long, long time. Um, it, it's you know, for the longest time, you know, since you know, twenty, twenty one years old. When when I'm having conversations with people, it's hard for me. I'm, if people think sometimes I'm checked out because I might my eyes might look glassed over. I'm constantly <laughs> thinking of how to use what they just said. And, and I'm already writing a whole verse while they're still telling me their story. Um, it never really shuts off. So I think I have that innate thing where that it's just kind of part of who I am. Um, but I, I think the second part, because I love it. And I think the second part is, um, first off, you got to use that tool or, or it does get a little rusty. Um, I, I think I'll always know how to write, but when I'm my sharpest is when I'm using that thing you know, over and over. And for me, you know, years ago before I had anything going on and I'm still the same way now, I just constantly listen to the records that moved me and what made me want to be great. And I think that's the thing that, that keeps me inspired is I still want to be great. I want to be one of the, you know, one of the great American singer songwriters and I want to be able to be great at my craft. So there's always that. And I think those two things and just the love of writing. And paying attention to what's going on, I've always got my eyes open. I'm not one of those people that's walking through this life clouded. So I'm I'm emotionally moved high and low by the small things in life. And I think that's just part of my genetic makeup. So 
that's where I think the writing comes from. I'm the same exact way. Um, I, I, that, that is so well said, and it's very relatable to me. You, you noted records that move you and make you want to be great. What are those records? Oh, man. Uh, Willie's Redheaded Stranger. Um, all the Jackson Brown records. Jackson's probably my favorite writer ever. Um, so many of the Springsteen records. I, I've probably got 30 of them. I've got a million of the vinyl records up here. and um, oh, You know, um, some of the Christopherson stuff um, I, I got really big into. But I, I think Bob Dylan has been my main hero as far as writing. I think that's the guy that I constantly go back to. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in our format, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great writers in our format, you know, as far as the artist side, you know, you, you got guys like church that are constantly putting out well-crafted records. Um, some of those, some of those old Miranda records were just, you know, they were, they were, they were written to the dime, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I would say that I was more a rock and roll baby. And that was more of the, the people and the you know that that kind of side of things is where I think I trained my my brain the most. Um, and and country was a little later in life, you know, in my in my teens, in my late teens. How would you describe your evolution as an artist these past five or six years? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think about this project that I'm writing now, um, and in each one of them, you know, I hate it when I know exactly what an artist is going to do. And I feel like a lot of times there's a lot of that, particularly in our format, when I know exactly what the guitar tone is going to sound like. I know what the lyrics are going to be about. I know how the grooves are going to go. Um, I never want to be that guy. I want to even, even if I end up putting out a record that you hate, at least I kept you on your toes. Um, and I have to do that for myself. I got to be challenged in that way. Um, so for me, I think the main thing with me is always been make sure I stay authentic to my soul when I'm working on music. Um, you know, in this business, you're constantly pressured, pressured to, um, the younger generation buys the records that's constantly ingrained in your head. You got to appeal to the younger, you know, this and that. Um, and I think that's why you find so many people that are, you know, they're in their early forties and their late thirties and they're still trying to sing to that young demographic. And it starts to almost sound kind of silly for me. It's about always being authentic to where I'm at in my life, and I, that's how I see the evolution. If I've only had three records, you know, I see this fourth one taking a whole nother leap. Um, and uh, I think that's the thing, is is the evolution has become from me staying authentic. You know, I see things differently. You know, when I was 27, 28, 29, writing the Up All Night record, I didn't really have anything but nostalgic experiences to draw on. I was from South Georgia. I'd never really traveled anywhere. I'd never been anywhere. So that was my life. So that whole record encompasses that. And then Wild Ones became more of a band of gypsies record of, of where I was at that particular time in my life. And it was about the road and it was about this. I'd seen all these things in the last two or three years. Um, you know, so I think it's that. It's it's trying to stay present and authentic where I'm at in my life. And that's where it always tends to change and grow. And now I'm at that place where I'm trying to figure out who I am in this world. I'm trying to figure out where do I belong? Uh, what is, what does God want out of me? What's my purpose? So this next record, you know, when I put it out, it's going to encompass a lot of that. It's very difficult to do that though, brother. You talk about, you know, 40 year old guys <laughs> trying to sing to the young crowd in today's format, in today's Nashville, a lot of times in order for guys to even have a career, they have to just cut what the label wants them to cut. Yeah. 
And that's yeah, to keep he, food on the table. What what has your yeah. experience been though, from that perspective uh, of I'm going to do what I am passionate about and what is in my soul, mm-hmm. you know, versus what the the label may or may want. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my answer is, it could be kind of loaded on that because there's a lot of elements to it. Um, first off, I have been super fortunate to have a label that's that really trusts me as a writer. Um, I produced this whole last record by myself, which is, which is really rare for them to let you do. Um, uh, and I think they've been out on the road and seen what kind of incredible fan base we've got growing from the grassroots. And I think that helps them to trust what I'm going to do. So I think that's one element. Um, so I, I don't think that maybe I face as much of that as some other artists, but I got, I think that labels know with some of the, their other artists, they don't have maybe that control in a room to go in and, and really know how to write with what's to their audience. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, with me, that's been a blessing is knowing that I can play the instruments, I can write it, I can craft it. Um, so I don't, I'm not um, a pawn to some other hit writer in the room. Um, and I understand it. I understand where an artist, that's one thing, you know, to be clear on is when you said you got to put food on the table. And a lot of times we're all, shoved into this box and when you do try to write something that's crafty and and it's too smart i've been told that before many songs it goes over the head and and you know we're told that you know the, the only way to get stuff on the radio is it's got to be kind of you know a little bit not think too much people just want to go home and turn their brains off when they're riding home from work and they want to put on the radio and not have to think much so it has to cater to that so you get told those things and it, it's a lot of pressure um, but for me, I think that I told myself, I told my manager, I told my label years ago, I said, the only way I'm going to be able to lay my head on my pillow at night is if if I know that I did my career following my heart. If if And, and what I mean by that is I can fail in that sense. You know, I've had lots of failed singles, um, but at least... I know I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sell out, and I can live with that. I can lay my head on my pillow. Um, but if, but if I, but if I feel like you know, there's been a lot of songs that have been pitched to me, and the fans don't know this, and I, and they are hit records. I know it through and through, but I just can't get up on that stage and sing that stuff. I, I can't do it. So I turned that down, in which I know would be a big paycheck. Um, I think it's fleeting. I think it's fleeting success if I did it. Um, but I can't. If I fail that way, then I can't look at myself. So I think that's kind of where I've always tried to keep my headspace, and it's paid dividends for me because we've developed such a um, such a tangible audience. And I think that's a key word: the tangible. There's a lot of intangible and tangible audiences, and um, big difference in hard tickets and soft tickets. And we built a really tangible hard ticket base, so it helps me to trust in what I'm doing in that sense too. So that the fans, I owe a lot of it too. I looked at the tour schedule. I mean, on that note, it's stacked. I mean, it's stacked. You're you're everywhere. And what you're talking about with that hard ticket sales is that is your cult. There is an energy exchange between that group and you and your band. What's it tell you when you see that every night? It tells me that we've been doing something right. It's uh it's uh it's immediate validation. Um and I, yeah, I would say that's that's the main thing is it is it is immediate validation in your work. And, and and all the sweat that you put into it. And the fans will never know behind the curtain 
all the things that happen and all the, the little sacrifices that you make to, to stay authentic to them and what you're trying to do and all the times you have to say no and you get into these battles with people that are trying to steer you in certain directions. Um, so for me, it's always that immediate exhale of keep doing what you're doing. You're getting there. It's a, it's a building block. Each year, I feel like we're putting on another building block. So, and it's, I know that through the waves of you think about from Hey Pretty Girl to more girls like you, you're looking at over four years between hit songs. And during that four years, we were able to probably triple our fan base. So radio is huge in getting people in the door. It's a, everybody wants a big radio hit because they see what it does. But it's up to you what you can do with that hit once they get in the door. Can you keep them? Can you, can you sustain it? Can you grow it? And uh, that's been the special part with us and the fan base. What hit records did you turn down? <laughs> Man, I would never say the names. Um, damn the it, damn it, dude. I would, that I would intrigues me so names. much. Uh, I've heard them. I've heard them since, and I knew it when I heard them. Um, you know, there's been other things, Marty. There's so many things uh, behind the curtain. You know, I can remember... Um, and I, I would never call this company out either, but a long time ago, and, and, and this was when I wasn't high rolling dough, you know, um, but some things were popping. I was a hot commodity at the time. And, and, uh, there was a really massive brand, um, that wanted me to come do this, uh, kind of rollout kind of thing. Um, and it got pitched to me kind of through my team kind of, and I don't know if, they were quite up to speed on exactly what it was, or maybe they were misinformed, or maybe they were just trying to get me to get there to get the check, and so it could be dispersed through the rest of them. I don't know. All I know is it got pitched to me one way um, that sounded kind of cool, and then once I flew out to L.A. and flown out there, um, they put me up in you know Five Star Plus Resort, which I, I, is never really my thing, but I enjoyed it while I was, <laughs> while I was there. Uh, but you know, I get there and it's a, it's a 20, 25 person crew. I mean, there's a lot of people that are getting paid to be there, you know, and, and I show up and, um, it's a pretty big, first off, a pretty big six figure deal, which I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Um, but I get there and it is not at all what I was told. And, um, you know, I could have just gone through with it. Um, it would have been a little, cheesy for my taste and it would have been kind of a compromise and a sellout to the integrity of what I felt I was an artist and what I felt the song was that they wanted to use. Um, I knew that song meant something to people and then I felt like it'd be viewed differently. Um, and it was a pressure cooker of a situation. But the minute I got in there and I felt that little nudge at my shoulder that I always try to listen to, you know, I said, uh, I need a, I need a second to step outside and think. And, uh, I stepped outside and, sucked down a cigarette in about two seconds <laughs> and went back in and uh, I can remember me and my manager getting into an extremely heated discussion outside because I'd already made up my mind I wasn't I wasn't going through with it and I said well this is just what's about to happen so I walked back inside and I said guys I am sorry for all of you I mean for all the wasted time but uh this ain't gonna be happening today I'm about to catch a flight back to Nashville and that's what I did but I think about those little moments and I think those Little moments at the time might not have seemed like much, but I think they have as far as sticking to my guns throughout my career. And I think that the fans see it and they feel it. 
they feel authenticity when I'm on that stage with them. I don't have pre-rehearsed things. You know, it's 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 a very organic show, um, and we try to give our heart and soul each and every night, and it's not a fake, phony thing. You noted the importance of radio and getting people in the door. I wonder what impact social media has on an artist's career these days. Um, You're pretty active. You I put would, out some cool stuff. Yeah, you know, I would say that it's it's – it's helpful in keeping people up to date with where you're going. I think that's how people find out about shows now. Um, I think that's a big way to find out about shows. Do I think that it makes people buy records? No. I think it has nothing to do with record sales, actually. Um, I think it might in the smallest, smallest percentage of it. Now, when you post a song and people love it, yeah, that's going to be a way to sell music. But what I mean by... I'll kind of rephrase what I said. I, I don't think social media makes um, anyone really fall for a certain artist and, and, and to follow that person. You know, you're going to have little, you know, if, if I'm laying around and I don't know, uh, you know, if I, if I take morning selfies with my, with my shirt off, and um, <laughs> don't bro. If I do I'll that, and follow you, you know, man. and I and I and I show my you know uh, my incredible physique, Marty. If I do that in the morning, <laughs> I'm teasing. If I sit around in the morning, I try to make you know sexy faces in the camera, and which it, it's baffling me that dudes are doing this now. But and I take morning selfies and I do this kind of thing. Am I going to gain more followers? Yeah, I'll get some teeny bopper followers, and that'll happen. But I don't think that equates to anything real and tangible like we were talking to earlier. I'll gain more mm -hmm. people that way. But I think that you you essentially lose it and you cheapen it in the long run. Um, so that's another one of those things where I don't put a lot of thought into social media. I try to share the things that are like real in my life. Like I just got, you know, I built a rock climbing lodge and I just went climbing. So I'll share those things. I'll share surfing. Um, I'll share shows and music and, and hanging with buddies. But I don't do things that I see people doing a lot of things on social media that, you know, is not really in their character, but they're trying so hard to be like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, and I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, that might work. You might do something crazy and this and that, but, um, and gain some followers. But I don't think that really equates to anything as far as a real fan base. Well said. Let's back up to 2012. You release your first record up all night. You noted it earlier. That thing is the best-selling first record, right? I mean, it was really, really well-received. Yeah. You what know, was, it kinda what got... was your mindset at that time? What did that tell you when you come out of the box that well? What, what was it? It was something about a truck, and then it's beer money, and then it's Hey, Pretty Girl, back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, right? Yeah. All really, really well, do really well commercially, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I, I tell you what, man. It was it was it was such a it was such a whirlwind. Um, I didn't quite know how to process any of that until it was long over. Um, you know, I went straight from sitting around the house in the studio just writing to playing over two hundred shows a year. Um, you know, so that meant I was on the road almost three hundred days a year. Um, so I didn't have time to really process anything that was happening, um, but. I did notice that once we got out there, it kind of goes back to what I said. You know, the the meat of the record was crazy one more time. Uh, the meat of the record was everything but you. It was these songs that had a lot of, of substance to them 
Depth. depth. Yeah, they had depth. Once we got people in the room, then we saw something magical happening and that people had actually that, – and that's another great thing about a big hit record commercially is that people go out and they'll buy the record. So then they were discovering what the record really was. And to be honest, you know, when you listen to the the bulk of that record, Hey Pretty Girl did, but like something about a truck almost didn't even belong on the record. It's a strange thing, but it did a great thing for me. It kickstarted the career, but um, but that was the that was what when I saw like what the fans were really gravitating to when I what I noticed that they felt something special in those songs the way I did. And the Crazy One More Time was the one we were always trying to get to. That was the one we were always trying to release as a single, but it never happened. Um, and hindsight, why didn't it done, happen? You know, earlier. Well, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where you keep getting told, you know, well, we need this one now to just be crazy more times a big thinker. They're going to have to think about this one. So we need a little more steam before we put that one out. And then once Hey Pretty Girl was over, we were either going to put out Reckless or Crazy More Time. And I've been writing all this new music and I felt like me and them, they were like, you know, because people forget that Mary, Mary was a Marion kind was a single first. So that took four or five months and then it died at 40. So, you know, we wasted four or five months on that. And then, you know, you're looking at all the other ones. So four singles off of that record. I was two and a half, three years into it. Yeah. So me being young and dumb, I was like, we got to get to something else. I got to start playing something else on the road because I'm one of those people that refuses to play a lot of covers. So I'm having to play hour and a half headlining sets around one record every night. And, you know, whatever other B-side material I got. And I just felt like I needed to get to something else. So it was mainly my fault the label wanted to go with those songs but i wanted to get to a new body of work this last record slow heart has a track on it called guitar man yeah and it's just beautiful i mean it's just it's a it's a stunning audio experience and i read that that was a one take shot in the studio first of all is that accurate and if so why was that the right decision and what was that recording experience like First off, your questions are great. I, I mean, I knew they would be. You're fantastic at what you do, but but that's a that's a great question, and it, it is true. Um, that song was the anchor of the record for me, and that was one that was I knew was special when I when I was writing it on the bus. Um, I wrote it from watching a guy after a late night playing for about twenty five thirty people in a little in a little bar, and everybody was singing along and 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 saying, man, this guy's great, this guy's great. But nobody knew his name. He was faithful because he was playing cover music. And I remember being that guy for years. And I remember looking at him, and I knew the look on his face, even though he's singing along. I knew that look of wanting more. And um, that's when the whole song kind of came to me. Um, just from, I remember being that guy for years down in South Georgia doing that whole bar band, cover band scene. And uh, I had worked it up. I had spent months trying to work up all the production of it i had it all in my head and i would sing out parts on my little recorder and i'd play different guitar parts and i'd sing what i wanted the drums to do here and there and i kind of layered a whole track vocally and and then i get in the studio and and uh sometimes that works great you know with the bulk of slow heart that worked to the t everything was already kind of blueprinted out when i got in there i was like okay you're gonna play this here and i want this to happen here and um with guitar man it was a it was a fight from the from the get-go everything was kind of fighting itself and um we we worked on it for probably an hour and a half, two hours, and, and I was running out of studio time. I only had about 15 minutes left, and I told the band to come out. And I just said, let me think for a second. And I, I can remember being so distraught 
knowing that, that this song probably wasn't going to make the record because we were running into a deadline, having to turn the record in to get it out on time. So in my mind at that point, I'm thinking I'm going to have to scratch this thing because I don't want to force it. And at that point, we were forcing the puzzle piece. And Tom Bukovac, one of the greatest guitar players that's ever lived, was on the session. And, um, and Dave Cohen, the keyboard player, they stayed behind in the room while the, the other guys came out, Slos and, and Matt Bubel and myself. We all kind of come out. And we're sitting around talking. And, and about that time, Dave Cohen just starts kind of playing that keys part that you hear by himself. And immediately it like, took me to church. And it was just him playing really softly. And then Tom Bukovac kind of joined in on him with those little sprinkly guitar notes kind of just following the progression. And I looked at my engineer and I said, that's it. That's what we have to capture, and that's all we're going to capture. I said, I'm going to go in there behind the vocal booth. And normally the way you do a record is you go sing a scratch vocal just to kind of give the guys a guide of where the lyric and the melody is going, and then you come back in another day and you really focus on, you know, getting it perfect. And at that time, my voice was actually fried. I mean, we'd already done six songs that day in the studio, and I've been singing scratches and talking all day, but I knew that was a magical moment. So I just went in there and I said, I want you to push record, I'm going to kind of let them think that we're just going to kind of like practice it. And I went in there and I told Tom and Dave, I said, man, I love what y'all are doing. Let's just kind of vibe on that through the whole song and see if we can kind of get a feel for what's kind of taking place. And Dave hit record and I sang the vocal and then you can hear me trying to catch up with my breath. Like there's no, there's no cutting and pasting. Um, that's all just one kind of take through. But it's awesome, man, because there's I mean, you you can tell even if I hadn't read that, I would I would have an idea because if you are cutting and pasting and piecing, the it just it impacts the passion a bit, and yeah. like there's just so much passion in that track. It's just I mean I just think it's brilliant, man. It's just Thank it's you, awesome man. to listen to. And there, I, there, there's actually a lyric on the very beginning of the song, um, and I left it out, and I was so mad with myself after that was the only part i left out and it's one of the crucial lines because it's the playoff of words but i just was so out of breath and i was trying to catch up and i left it out but it's uh you know well i woke to the rise of the sun going down the stale taste of whiskey the actual lyric is stale taste of whiskey still fresh on my mouth and i just left out the steel and those are like little nuggets that i get super anal about when i'm writing and i left out the steel and uh I wanted to go back in and fix it, and I was like, "Nah, it's just gonna live how it is." Well, it's brilliant, and another another one of your brilliant songs. And I've worn you out about this one. Every I, I play it often. It's on my everyday beer drinking on the back porch, staring at the lake <laughs> mix. Is running for you. I just think yeah. it's just this brilliant song, and it, I, I'm I am bewildered that it didn't resonate more commercially. Why do you think it too. didn't? I just I don't understand it, Kip. What, what's your thought? Um, I think that I don't know, but I think that I think I'm kind of caught in the, I'm caught in the middle of a very pop kind of sound right now. Um, um, and there's kind of some a little bit of grungy. You know, it's a pretty grungy guitar kind of kind of happening right there in the, in the beginning. And um, I, I'm not sure, but. Uh, Sometimes I think that, you know, it, it's, um, I might be kind of falling victim to that. I think that the audience has gotten a lot younger. I think that there's a, there's a scary thing that can be happening with that too. If you're catering too much of a young, to a young audience, 
and you're driving away your mature listeners that kind of founded the genre and been supporting it all these years. Um, when you're totally catering to super young group, that's fickle. Um, it's very fickle, uh, a very fickle foundation to me, first off. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that maybe something like that, you know, could could be could could play a play in it. I'm not sure. You know, there's a lot of very poppy, happy beats kind of going on at that time when you look at the charts. Um, and I think that was kind of, you know, it was kind of a heavy tune. You know, it was a heavy feel from the start. You know, so I'm not sure, man. I always thought that song was going to be a lot bigger than it was. It's just, I mean, I love it. You know, uh, guys, just so you know, uh, you guys listening, I. I play it often and I just wear Kip out. I probably sent him 50 texts in our, in our friendship about that damn song. I found it interesting that after, after the Wild Ones tour, you traveled extensively. Uh, it was really fun to follow on social media. Uh, I don't, I don't know where all you went. I think you went to Costa Rica and Iceland and all these exotic lands. And, you know, why was it important for you to take that trek? And during that trip, you produced this this series of sort of mini movies. What was your hope with those? Um, well, I mean, I, I I I don't think that I had much of a hope with what it was going to do. Um, I, I think with me, with the travels um, and the way we do them, you know, I stayed in hostels the whole time. So, and. I traveled long before I made, you know, like I, I would work really hard and I'd save up my pennies and I would, I'd buy me a ticket and I'd go camp out somewhere and I'd, I'd or I'd stay in a hostel or, or whatever it took to go see something new. Um, so, I, you know, I look around and I see this movement of, uh, you know, people taking all their selfies in their private jets and or out on the land, you know, out on the, the strip about to get on the jet or the nice cars or the big houses. And I never want people to crave those things because those things don't mean, um, those things, they're not going to bring you happiness. And I, and I, I feel like we're in this super, super vain period of life. And I think it's only going to get worse. And I think that now when I talk about it and I've noticed this, like I'm the weirdo, and if I'm talking about it, I'm just this jaded guy or whatever. And that's to me, that's a that's a that's a scary thing that it's gotten to that point where, you know, that's no longer bizarre, all these things that are happening. So for me, yeah, I mean, I've made money now, you know, um, I'm still living in the same two bedroom, little tiny little place. Um, uh, I haven't gone out and, you know, I, I do spend my money on travel. Um, but I think that when I'm posting those series of videos and I'm showing the shots of Iceland and. I want people to, to, to crave the right things in life. I want them to crave experiences and, and I hope they get to have that for themselves. So that's the, I think when I put up stuff like that, as I want them to see the other world that's outside of Kentucky, outside of Birmingham, outside of Michigan, there is a, all these beautiful places and these beautiful people. And, um, I, I do want people to get out and see things like that because I, I think it does make you more real, real well-rounded. And you see the world different and you start to understand when, you know, all the social issues that are going on now, you know, my eyes are open to, to all the stuff. Um, so I think that's what I try to push on people. If that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And not only is there a world outside of Birmingham and Michigan and Atlanta and all those, I mean, there's a, there's a world outside of your mirror and your phone. Yeah. And I agree with you completely. 
um, it's so important to, I've been blessed too. I've been all over the world and I love to, to share what that experience is, uh, because it, I don't know, it's, 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 it shapes you differently. It, it's, I, I consider us all to be pieces of clay and our lives experiences pinch at that clay and remold who we are and who we're going to become. And, uh, it's wonderful to get to do that. Um, I got two more things and I'll let you run brother. This one's tough. Uh, because I know it's very involved. Describe the challenge of making it in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, man. Um, boy, I'll tell you what. Um, and, I, and I think it's different now than when I came through. Um, I think it's always been a, you know, a big challenge. Um, but now, you know, a lot of the things you've been talking about this, in this interview, they matter. You know, what's your social media like? What's your, you know, it's all these elements that I didn't have to deal with. Um, and I, I, you, you kind of sense that it's, um, I get the feeling sometimes now people are just trying to be famous instead of trying to get really good at what they do in their craft. It's kind of a different thing that's kind of taking shape, but, but, but for me, um, I'll tell you what, man, it was, uh, I, I, you know, I can remember going the first winter that I was here. Um, you know, I, a lot of songwriters will come up to me and ask me, you know, what does it take? You know, and I, I don't know anything about them. I don't know what they got inside of them. You know, and there's people like, well, I got this full time job, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hustling on the side here and there. And first off, that ain't going to work. Um, it, it's got to be all of your attention and focus. And, you know, I think that it's I, I still believe it's got to be that if you're going to be great at what you do and you're going to be lasting. You might be a flash in the pan. You know, you're good looking, can sing a little bit and you get a few little songs they pitch to you and you might have a flash in the pan little thing. But I think if you're going to really create something that's special. Um, you got to eat and breathe it every single day. Um, I sacrificed jobs. You know, there was good jobs offered to me that I turned down where I just worked part time, you know, just enough to get by. I'd work nights or I'd work mornings doing something and I'd write through the day. And um, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of things I didn't want to have to do. Um, I went a winter with no heat. I didn't have a mom wow. and dad that I could be like mom and dad send me money. Like I, I didn't have that. They they might would have, but I refused to do that. Um, I knew they didn't make a lot of money, so I wasn't going to ask them for any. Um I remember laying in my bed, you know, 24 years old and, and you know, my, I think my second year here and I couldn't afford the heat bill um, and uh, watching my breath in my bed. I remember doing that several nights and just being like, how am I going to change this? Um, I can remember going to restaurants and <laughs> I kind of, you know, save up my money and I'd eat, you know, cheap meals and, you know, ramen noodles kind of things. And I go to a restaurant and I might order something really small. And this might sound disgusting, but I might sit by a family. I didn't do this every time, but I do it occasionally. And then when they all kind of got up, you know, usually they were going to leave something behind. I might snag a few things. I might snag some of their shrimp or whatever, whatever it was. And that was kind of what I did, you know. And I, I, I you know, I drove a old, really old Nissan truck that had about five hundred thousand miles on it, I think. But I mean, it was it was laying on my floor when I get off of work at night, and I would listen to Bob Dylan, Jackson Brown, listen to these people to four o'clock in the morning and I'd write out all the lyrics. I'd handwrite all the lyrics and try to understand the metaphor uses, the plays off of words, how they crafted, how they work towards a hook. I hear so many songs now that it's all, it's not written right. They're not writing towards a hook. And if they got the hook, there's nothing that really even that, that, that signals that in the verses of the course, it's just kind of all over the place. And I, I, I was a student of the game and I think that my athletic background a lot of times is kind of that, kind of washing over you know i was always trying to prepare um so for me it was 
every second of the day. And then when I got a songwriting deal, I had that for four years before I got a record deal. I lived in that studio. I literally lived in it. It was a haunted studio that was the scariest place ever, but I was there, you know, morning and night. You know, writers get there and they write from 10 to 5. I was there 24 hours and I was only sleeping about six of those. And the other 20, I was I was writing. I was practicing. You know, I was I was honing my craft so that when that time came, I think about like that church tour, my, you know, very early on in my career, you know, in 2010 or 11, mm-hmm. you know, I was so green, but I was still prepared and I was ready as I could have been at that time, you know, and I'm 10 times better now, but I had to be ready for those moments when they came. We had fun out there. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a lot of fun out there. What do you want your career to look like moving forward? What do you want from your career? Oh, man, you know, I, I ask myself that sometimes, Marnie. I think for me, as, as I'm learning to be, I'm still as driven as I've ever been. I still want to play stadiums. You know, I still want those things. Um, I, I think for me, though, it's just I, I, I'm starting to have that sense of, you know, where it used to be. I was such a maniac and feeling like I never was where I wanted to be, and I'm always looking ahead. I'm learning how to enjoy the moment more now, and I'm learning. I'm learning to be to celebrate the, these these victories along the way, you know, and and get to play these bigger rooms each time we go to these cities. And now we're getting this crazy fan base all through Europe and all through Australia and um, Canada. It's a beautiful thing. So I think for me, it's 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 just continuing to build on what we built on, and and continuing to stay authentic with the fans. You know, I think I guess I want to be able to look back and know that through my whole career. I stay true to myself, and I stay true to them. And I think that's the main thing is in, in that and just enjoying this whole ride because it's a beautiful ride. So I think that's my main focus is now. I don't look so much into I want to win Entertainment of the Year and I want to play a stadium. I, I want all those things, but that's not what drives me. I'll tell you what, dude. Uh, you're the 27th or 28th person I've interviewed on the Marty Smith's America podcast, and there ain't been a better one. Uh, I appreciate your I appreciate candor. It. I appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. It's uh, it's always it's going to inspire people. I mean, your your honesty and stripping veneer and telling your truth will will inspire a lot of people, and certainly inspires me, dude. I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship. Appreciate your work and your time. Thank you, brother. You bet, buddy. Hope to see you soon, man. I told you guys. I told you. I mean, what that that part, Travis, that it, guys, just so you know, Travis is a country music fanatic like I am. And so we were both really fulfilled by getting to spend that time with Kip and learn his story. I mean, the part that stood out to me is laying in his bed and seeing his breath because it's so damn cold in his apartment and then going to the restaurant, going to a restaurant and eating off the plate beside you because you can't afford to eat. You know you're passionate about your pro- what you want to do, but also you're willing to do anything. Like he was willing to do whatever it took to make it. If you're eating food off of plates, I mean it's like it's like you're willing to do whatever it takes to be to, to live the dream that you've had for yourself ever since you were small. And it's not for Kip and for some of my other buddies in the industry. A lot of times it's hard right now to be the artist you want to be. There is this divergence between I want to cut this song. And I have to cut this song because it's what might get me on the radio to keep that food on the table. And one thing I've always admired about Kip is he ain't pandering. He won't pander to what somebody else says he should do or be. 
and man, that impresses me. It just impresses me so much, and I appreciate him not only as a as an artist but as a friend. And another guy that I appreciate very much is in the Marty Party this week. That is LSU quarterback Joe Burrow. Some of you guys may have seen the feature that I did on Joe a few weeks back, right before he led the LSU Tigers into Auburn, Alabama, and beat Auburn at home in what was the Ed Orgeron's biggest victory as LSU's head coach. And I found Joe to be a special kid ever since he was at, at Ohio State. Some of you guys know his story. Some of you guys don't. Grew up really wanting to go to Nebraska. His father played there. His brothers played there. His uncle played at Ole Miss. He didn't get that opportunity. So enter Urban Meyer and the Ohio State Buckeyes. Joe was a high school phenom in Ohio. Joe was a ball player as a quarterback. Goes to Ohio State, learns under JT Barrett for three years, and then ultimately is engaged this past spring in a quarterback battle with Dwayne Haskins, who is an elite football player, and Haskins ultimately won that quarterback competition. He's tearing it up for the Buckeyes right now. And that meant Joe had a decision. Ultimately, Joe decides to transfer to LSU, and he too is tearing up college football. He's doing a great job, and I really appreciated his story. And had an opportunity to tell it just a few weeks back here on Sports Center. And I want to use this platform on the Marty Smith's America podcast to flush out those pieces. And it was the first time that Jimmy Burrow, Joe's father, who is the defensive coordinator at Ohio University, it's the first time Jimmy's spoken about Joe uh, to the national media. It's the first time that he has sat down with someone and described what the journey has been like for his son as a football player and for Jimmy and uh, the Burroughs as a family. And so I appreciated that so much. So I wanted to take that insight they gave me and give you guys a little bit more insight into this young man. Um, as we speak, LSU's ranked fifth in the country, and they have beat two top ten teams in college football as we sit here and chat. And so he is really playing well. And I wanted to take that those conversations both with Joe and with his father and let you guys hear them in their entirety because I just found them to be so cool, and I think you will too. So we'll start with Joe, and we'll listen to the interview that I did with him for Sports Center, and then we'll get into my conversation with his father, Jimmy, a proud father, a very proud father of his quarterbacking son. So in the Marty Party, it's Joe and Jimmy Burrow right now. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty Party. So your old man's the defensive coordinator at Ohio U. What's the impact of growing up in the game? You know, I think it just allows me to have a better understanding overall of football. Um, we would watch film of my high school football games, and he would give me tips and pointers, and you know how teenagers are. I would always kind of push back at him. Um, but looking back it up, it really helped me. How special is that now that you got to spend that time with him as you're aging and you learn more what that actually is. Yeah, looking back on it, it was really special. Uh, I think it still helps me to this day, being able to come in here and pick up the offense really quickly. What does football mean to the Borough household? Football is life for us. You know, we never really went to church on Sundays. We would stay home and watch NFL football. And on Saturdays, we, my dad would get home from his game, and we would come home and watch primetime games. We would watch every game together and, you know, really never – did anything else except football and some basketball. I imagine you were probably one of those kids that was running around the facility all the time. 
What are your memories of doing that? Well, I remember going into the locker rooms after the games and kind of just sitting there. I was a little uncomfortable being like seven or eight with all these grown half-naked men walking around. Um, but I, I loved being there, and um, their, their head strength coach now was training me throughout middle school and high school, and that really prepared me. How much does Joe Burrow love football? Football, football is Joe Burrow. Um, I took made sure I could take all online classes here so I could spend all my hours at the facility watching film, preparing for our opponent. Um, football wasn't in my life. I don't really know what I would be doing. When you were small and you guys are sitting around the dinner table having conversations, how much of those conversations centered around the game? Mo- most of them. We would ask my dad what what he thought of the team he was playing. He would ask me what I thought of the team that I was going to play. During basketball season, it was basketball. And then back to football in the spring. So we talked about academics sometimes, but I never had any trouble with it, so we were just talking about football. What was that quarterback battle like at Ohio State? What did you learn about yourself in that battle with Haskins? Yeah, we had been battling for seemed like forever it was about two and a half years and every day was a battle just like it was here and you know we came out better as quarterbacks and better as people because we learned how to interact with each other with just about everything on the line and I learned that you know if I can if I can get through that for two years I can get through just about anything why what was that like what did you get through it was it was a challenge because you know, we're obviously ch- battling to for our careers and for our families and to lead the team. Um, and it was really close. And uh, throughout all of spring, I think we were trading blows, ha- haymaker blows in practice every day. And when you come out of that, you come out a better person than a quarterback. So much of your family, so many of your family members played in Nebraska. Why didn't you? They didn't offer me. It's pretty simple. I wanted to go there, um, but they didn't offer me. And that, it is what it is, but I think it worked out for the best. So did you grow up go Huskers, or did you grow up – I mean, you're an Ohio kid. Did you Were, were you go Bucks or go Huskers? Go Huskers. I honestly hated the Buckeyes growing up because my dad coached at OU and people would wear Ohio State jerseys to the, my dad's games. So I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we're an Ohio jersey, but they would wear Ohio State jerseys. So I hated them growing up. And I fell in love with them in the recruiting process. Um, but growing up, I was definitely a Nebraska fan. What did you learn watching JT Barrett those couple of years? Yeah, I learned how to really be a leader, my own kind of leader, but I understood what it takes to play at the highest level, prepare at the highest level, and then lead the team to go try to win it all. He had some very kind things to say about you recently. I don't know if you saw those comments or not. And if you did, what, what, were, what are your thoughts on what he said? You know, I really appreciate JT. Um, he was one of my best friends in Columbus for, for three years, and um, he's more of a, a friend to me than a teammate and a mentor. But uh, I visited him twice this summer when he was in New Orleans, and it was good to see him when you don't really know anybody down here. So I could go lean on JT on on whenever I was feeling lonely, I would call him. Uh, he's always been a great friend to me. How would you describe the past three months? Whirlwind. Uh, you come in, try to win over 150 new new faces every day, um, learning a new culture, 
learning a new playbook. Um, it was definitely a whirlwind for me, um, trying to learn how to be a leader with these new guys. Several of your teammates said that you won the team very quickly. How did you win the team? You know, the one thing that I can put my, put my finger on is hard work. You know, people respect hard work, and I kept my mouth shut for a couple months and just put my nose to the grindstone and let my work do the, do the talking. Um, we had every, I tried to win every single sprint that we ran. Um, that's really what you got to do when you're trying to win a team. Conscious decision to win those sprints, huh? Yes. What were you trying to show? Show that I can be respected and be counted on when the, when the times get tough. Um, if you can't follow directions when you're tired during the summer, you're not going to be able to execute a play against Auburn in the fourth quarter when you're tired and there's 100,000 screaming fans in your ear. So that's, that's what I was trying to show. Joe, that sounds like a kid who has a dad that's a coach. <laughs> yeah. How much of that mindset comes directly from that experience with your dad? I would say a lot of it. Um, you, got, you, you learn how to be a leader and how to handle a football team when your dad's coach. You waited a while to get your shot. I want you to put me in your pocket when you're running out on that field in Dallas, Texas, and you're going to line up against the Miami Hurricanes for the first time and you're looking across that field or you're in that huddle. What were your thoughts and emotions in that moment? You know, the first play, I kind of took a step back for a couple of seconds and relished it, but it was only five seconds, and I had to call the cadence and get ready to play. So you don't really have that much time to take a step back from it all because you got to go beat the Miami Hurricanes, one of the best teams in the country. Um, so I, I, I took a step back for three to four seconds and – then I, then I went out and played. What did you see? I saw the Miami Hurricanes, and then I called the Cadence. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like to finally get your time? It's really special, but at the same time, I still have to prepare like I'm trying, trying to prove something because I am. Um, trying to prove that I can be a quarterback at this level. Trying to prove that I can lead a team to places that they haven't seen in a while. And I'm trying to prove that my level of quarterbacking can, can take place anywhere. Why is that important to you to prove those things? Because I want to show people that hard work does pay off, patience does pay off, and when you do get your time and opportunity, that you can go and seize it. Your time and opportunity came at LSU, not Ohio State. What was Urban Meyer's message to you? You know, me and Coach Meyer have a lot of respect for each other. Um, he called me a couple times this summer, told me he loved me every time, and I love Coach Meyer too. Um, there's a lot of mutual respect there, mutual love, and that'll be a relationship that we keep throughout the years. Why LSU? The opportunity was there. Uh, I fell in love with the place when I came on my visit. Uh, teammates drove from a couple hours away to come and, come and see me on my visit, and that really spoke volumes. How do you define success when this thing's done this year? That's a good question. Um, I think to look forward that far in the future would be a disservice to our football team. And I think we're focused on going 1-0 every week. Um, I'm still I'm still learning and growing as this thing uh, goes on too. So to look forward in the future when we got to play Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi State, Florida in the swamp, I think – you can't really define success yet. We'll have to see. Joe, 
Do you know that that sounds just like a young man that grew up with a football coach? <laughs> I figured it did. It's funny. How does football play into your relationship with your brothers? Yeah, um, you know, they talked to me talk to me a lot about what I'm going through as a college football player today and what they went through as college football players in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And, you know, we talk about different stories. Um, we don't really talk about the X's and O's too much. We talk more about locker room culture and that kind of stuff. You, you did say it was a new culture here. Uh, what is that culture? Um, it's hard to really put a finger on it. The South is just different than the North. Um, the food is different. The people are different. The mannerisms are different. So I just kind of had to learn how to fit in in this new place. What's your relationship with him, and what is your occupation? What does football mean to Joe Burrow? What do you remember about him being small and running around your team? What are those memories for you? As a guy who played at Nebraska, what was it like when he was not offered an opportunity to play at Nebraska? What was it like mentoring him and talking him through the quarterback battle at Ohio State before he chose to head to Baton Rouge? I can't imagine what those days were like. It was interesting to talk to Joe about it. What was it like for you from a parental perspective?
So he chooses LSU. I want your thoughts on that initial meeting you had with Coach O and the offensive staff. What did you learn about your son in that meeting? Coach O was funny. I asked him about that meeting, and he said Joe was the smartest person in the room. How would you describe Joe's competitiveness? I know this is a little bit difficult to answer since you're his dad, but when did you know he was special?
How would you describe his commitment to football? What is football to Joe Burrow? Look, he said Joe Burrow is football. When you hear your son say that, how do you react? His moment finally arrived against Miami. What was it like for you and your family when he ran out on the field for LSU against the U? I really enjoyed spending my time with Joe and Jimmy Burrow, and I love to hear him discuss being in that initial meeting with Coach Orgeron and the offensive staff at LSU and watching his son 
as an expert of the game, watching his son for the first time almost as this third party. Because you heard him say there, you know, he and Joe have talked ball their whole lives. It is their whole life. You heard them say it. Football is Joe Burrow. But as a dad, to sit there and watch your son command that room and say, this is how LSU does this. This is how Ohio State does this. Oh, if they do this, I'm going to do that. This is how I read that play. The bursting pride that I would have if I was Jimmy Burrow in that moment would be uh impossible for me to articulate. And it was... I love that stuff, man. I'm a big fathers and sons guy. My father and I had an amazing relationship, and football was a big part of that. Now, I didn't play in college. I, I'm Uncle Rico. You guys know that. I'm I'm old Buddy Garrity from Friday Night Lights. But I just I love that part of football, man. I love that fathers and sons part of it, and they're an amazing example. And another amazing example of a young man who maximized his ability – and who maximized his opportunities, and who was damn sure determined that he was going to get those opportunities, is one Baker Mayfield. Heisman Trophy winner at Oklahoma, former walk-on, and now number one pick in the NFL draft, who just happened to win his first game for the Cleveland Browns. And there was a unique reaction to that on the Hillbilly Hotline. Words, sayings, or just a way of life. The bowl cut plus the mullet, the bullet. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. This is Andrew Dragonside. I'm in the dark crowd right now. And we're calling Super Bowl. Baker Mayfield's getting a statue. Let's go, Browns! All right, brother. Uh, first of all, they're not uh, jumping to any conclusions. Not jumping to any conclusions, are they? No, of course not. And why would they be excited? It's the first time that they've won a game in like three. How long has it been? Six hundred some days. It's been whatever. a minute. They brought him in, and he was down fourteen nothing, and he did that. That's Baker. It has Mayfield. been Baker comes into the game, and he does what Baker does. I mean, the kid's amazing. I have said that since the first time that I saw him play. He is. One of these guys that has that innate ability to will himself to success. And he will have a chip on his shoulder until the day he dies because I don't care if he was the number one pick in the draft. He's still that guy that feels like he has to prove everything to everybody. I think Joe's got a little Baker in him too against the U when there was a little scrum before the game. Who ran out there and got in the middle of it? Listen, Joe, man, Joe, Joe Burrow. Burrow's a, he's a, he's got that Ohio blue collar mentality that's who he is i mean it's all they can do to get him to slide and not get his bell rung slide man slide they need you and baker's that same way i know that travis didn't like it but i loved it when he planted that flag i was actually his biggest defender when he planted that flag because if it was a high state player you know damn well we would have been celebrating it. i love the moxie and the swagger i want my guys to go go out there and be like you know what there's stories on the sideline after he'd score high state fans were yelling at him he went up to them and goes you like that get ready for some more yeah, I love that stuff. And if you can back it up, I mean, if you can't back it, it's kind of like the turnover chain, right? If you have the turnover chain and you're not turning anybody over and it's just this hokey deal, then it doesn't have any juice. It's a it's a clown show. But when you're over there turning the other team over and it's a spectacle, it's a team spectacle, then it's really awesome. And Baker has backed up everything he's ever said. And uh I will say, though, brother, when you're in a dog pound, just, just pump the brakes a little bit. Just, I mean, you you have every right to be excited. I would be excited. I feel like there's, there's some, uh, quite literally, Jar- Jarvis Landry is juice, right? But there's juice in Cleveland that there hasn't been in a long, long time. 
So be thrilled, be amped, be stoked, be passionate, as you guys always are up there. But, man, just temper it just a hair for a little while. I don't know. Right, let's they, just take they our They had a victory in a while, and those Bud Light fridges are about to open up, Marty. That's true. It was cold beer. Yeah, I guess if I would have won all that cold beer, too, I, I, I might have done the same thing. And, by the way, as if Baker wasn't already a legend, when he says dilly dilly, you know he became an absolute. He probably already has a Bud Light deal. If not, where are you at, Bud Light? Let's go. So I'm proud of Baker. Uh, I appreciate Joe Burrow. I appreciate his father. Certainly, I appreciate Kip Moore. What an awesome show. And, I, again, it's the joy of my life to get to spend time with these guys and humanize them. Talk about life. Everybody knows the what. I want the who and the how and the why. And I hope you guys enjoy that because I certainly do. Travis, thank you so much, brother, for all of your hard work on the Marty Smith's America podcast. Louise, thanks for being crazy. And letting us do this thing. Thanks so much to the guests, as I said. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, I need you to subscribe, rate, and review. Please do it. Uh, again, I, as I say all the time, I know it can be trivial and is annoying. All those things. I get it. But it's important to the podcast for you to do that. If you would subscribe, rate, and review, we would appreciate it. And lastly, as I say every week, and I mean it, uh, thank you so much to our military both uh, here in the United States and all around the world who are defending our freedom and allowing us to live in the greatest nation in the world. And we do. And God bless America. And thank you guys. And have an amazing week. We'll see you next time around. This is the Marty Smith America podcast.